Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a super strong passion for making people healthier in this world, whether you're an executive over at a hospital, an executive over at a health insurance company, run a yoga studio, run a meditation practice, you're caring for a loved one, you're caring for more than one person in this world other than yourself. And that makes you a great potential listener or a great listener to this show. Um, I'm really enthused. I'm really excited to have Dr. Cameron Sapa on the show. Uh, Dr. Cameron Sapa is a venture capital investor and executive in residence at Trinity Ventures. He's also an assistant clinical professor at UCSF Medical School Department of Psychiatry. He's done some powerful things in health. He's doing some powerful things in health. He's setting himself up to, uh, to do further more powerful things in health, but I'm not going to steal his thunder. Dr. Cameron... Sapa, welcome to the show, and thank you for making time for doing this and spending time with me here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I guess, you know, maybe you can take us back, teleport us back to, um, I don't know what you consider the beginning, but maybe what are the series of steps that you've gone through in your life to, that have led you to become the person you are? Um, tell us a little bit about your origin. Sure. Um, yeah, I kind of have a unique background um, and my career has kind of gone through three phases. So I'll briefly walk you through them. So uh, I'm, I'm a healthcare guy, um, you know, so I, I trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, I have two specialties, actually. One is in the treatment of anxiety disorders and the other one is in behavioral medicine, um, which is essentially the behavioral treatment of uh, chronic health conditions like obesity and diabetes. So, you know, I was working in hospital settings, helping patients better manage their type 2 diabetes, um, and having really, you know, um, good results with that, but just realized that obesity and diabetes are unfortunately such an epidemic in this country that uh, I wasn't going to treat it one patient at a time. So it really brought to mind the need for how do you take really solid evidence-based treatments, like the ones that we were doing in hospitals, but um, make them more accessible and scalable to the millions of people that needed them. And so that's how I sort of became an accidental entrepreneur. I moved out to Silicon Valley, helped start a company called Omada Health that essentially creates digital behavioral medicine and essentially scales my specialty. Um, and Omada has helped 250,000 people lose about two and a half million pounds and, and reduce their risk of diabetes and heart disease. And so um, that's how I got into the whole uh, tech industry. So that was the second mm -hmm. part of my career was becoming a health tech entrepreneur um, with Omada. And then I left and actually started a consumer keto nutrition company um, mm -hmm. to help people comply with ketogenic diets um, since they're incredibly effective for people on the diabetes spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, sold that company and then um, became a health tech investor. So that's the third sort of act of my career is um, how, do I, how do I even scale myself now uh, in terms of having um, population health level impact in investing in a broad array of companies that are doing good things and helping people in the world. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, I really appreciate your work. And, you know, I'm familiar with Omada and obviously a lot of our listeners are as well. And, you know, incredible success there. And it's just a blessing that, you know, you were, you were able to spark that. And now you're, you're taking those sparks that came off of that. And now you're, you're growing other ventures, growing, you know, other sparks and, and having, making other things happening in a more scalable way and in other population health areas. And what also fascinates me is this intersection of your passion between the mind and the body. And you know how the two work together, mm -hmm. and and um, you know I'm a big fan. Um, if you may not know about keto, 
um, and intermittent fasting. It's done wonders for me. It's done wonders for our, our team at Health Hero as well. All of us uh, <laughs> yeah. have competitions on it, sort of. If you if you can gamify, we've we've done it. But um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the uh, the things you're working on in health or the things that you're seeing, I guess more specifically, like what, what themes in health today capture your fascination most? And I just love to hear more about that. And, you know, if you're expressing your fascination through specific investments or companies or just research, just love to hear about your prep passions that, that captivate you right now. For sure. And, and by the way, I just wanted to say, you know, with the companies that I've been involved with, I've been very, very fortunate to be a part of wonderful teams. Um, so I never want to take, you know, singular credit for any, any of the things that I've done. Um, and I think that's really the beautiful thing about Silicon Valley is, you know, w once you've been a part of a successful company, hopefully you take that knowledge and that expertise and that network and you leverage it to the next generation. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to do um, as an investor. Um, and then on the, the keto side, I'm glad you mentioned that as well. It's interesting because traditionally psychologists, psychiatrists have not really been known for being involved in nutrition. Mm -hmm. Um, but I actually think that's, that's changing dramatically. I see more and more of, uh, people like myself and colleagues doing that because just the research evidence and clinical experience, um, you know, really highlights how important nutrition is obviously not just for our physical health, but our mental health as well. And there's good research coming out and obviously, you know, ketones are, you know, metabolized and used as a fuel source by the brain and clearly have, um, cognitive and, and, and uh, mood effects. Um, so I think there's, this is a whole new evolution of um, how we think about health. And, um, and as you point out, you know, the mind and body are not really separate things. Either they're inextricably intertwined. And I think more and more over time, we're going to see uh, the evolution of these things. Um, so that, that's an area of interest, um, obviously, very personally and professionally. I have a passion about, about um, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, both of the companies that I uh, helped start were nutrition related. And I, now I continue to invest um, in certain companies as well in mm -hmm. that space. Um, but I, I would say in terms of uh, emerging areas, new areas of, of interest that I'm particularly excited about is one, I'm really excited about consumer telemedicine. Mm. It's kind of interesting because telemedicine, if you think about it, was like the first most obvious application of technology to healthcare, which is like, okay, you know, you have uh, docs like myself and, you know, it's hard for patients to come to the hospital. Why don't you just see them through, you know, video conferencing? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the first generation of companies, I think, kind of struggled with that, that business model in terms of the dock in the box uh, on a video screen. And but now we see these, you know, this rise of new generation of companies um, like Hims and Roe and Keeps and um, mm -hmm. that are es essentially making generic drugs more accessible to a new generation of consumers. Now, obviously, that's not without its controversy. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the companies are, are doing very well. And I think, you know, as long as they're providing, you know, clinical services in an ethical and responsible way, um, this is going to be an increasing tide and, and consumers, quite frankly, have already voted with their dollars. I think there's a demand for convenient, low cost, asynchronous health. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that trend is going to continue. And, and where I see it sort of evolving that I'm particularly excited about is not just selling, you know, generic drugs in, in nice new packages that are conveniently mailed to your door. I think there's a whole new untapped opportunity for them to get into custom formulations and even combinations of um, both prescription and even over-the-counter, um, uh, you know, drugs and supplements um, that are not increasingly available because traditionally, you know, the, the pharma industry is not, you know, it's just not set up to be very personalized. And outside of, you know, compounding pharmacies and pharmacists that can, you know, do this kind of work. Now, it's never really been scalable, but now there's an opportunity, I think, for the first time in history to, to be able to do this and really serve 
patients in very individualized and personalized ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, the, the trend, yeah, it's getting into, into more of this next generation, um, you know, level and iteration of, of the space, which is really exciting. That means, you know, people can get healthier, faster at more scale with less boundaries and less, you know, restrictions. Um, and so it's really exciting to see, um, you know, what's happening. Uh, I'm curious on, um, you know, I know you and I, you know, we're, we're uh, touching a little bit on keto and your, 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 you know, passions there, obviously from a business standpoint, but maybe for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with keto, um, why is, you know, I guess what, what I'm interested in, why do you think keto's uh, picking up, um, more notoriety, uh, against, you know, across, you know, becoming more popular. What is keto? What's your ideal? Like, you know, when it comes to keto, um, what, what is, what are some things that you recommend or find benefit to, to keto from a personal basis? Uh, I think that's important to discover. I do feel like, uh, you know, keto is, you know, kind of like a really good template and, and way of thinking. It's more like, it's more than just like a type of diet i don't think it's necessarily a diet it's like a mindset if anything right so um but maybe you can can you explain that a little bit more just for our listeners that you know that may have heard of it but want to understand a little bit more why it's uh why it's uh gaining some some uh some popularity yeah absolutely so so ketogenic diets are you know in essence um very low carbohydrate diets um and there's different versions of it um Mm -hmm. some of them are kind of low carb high fat others are kind of low carb high protein but the, but the singularity that they share is essentially um, very much restricting carbohydrates, generally to less than 30 to 50 grams a day mm-hmm. is the general guideline. And what happens is when your body um, is no longer, um, you know, has carbohydrates available as its primary fuel source, mm-hmm. it then relies on burning fat. And ideally, that's your own fat, your body fat that most of us have in excess, um, which is why it's very effective for losing weight. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the sort of the popularity of diets over time, there's always diets that sort of come and go mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of trends. So Atkins, would, you know, back in the 90s, um, was essentially a very keto-compatible diet. You know, sometimes you just get sort of renamed and reformulated in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Some people have, I think, unfairly kind of positioned um, keto as being just, okay, this is an, just another sort of diet fad. Mm-hmm. It's going to come and go. But I actually don't think it's, it's the case. And I think the reason it's resonated so much is because you know, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, some popular celebrity that's pitching some new diet fat in a book, um, keto has an extensive body of research literature behind it. So I mm-hmm. think it's a very evidence-based diet. So, you know, clearly as a clinician scientist, you know, that's very important to me. I don't recommend or, or practice things that don't have a solid evidence base. Um, and, you know, increasingly, I think there's been a movement where, um, you know, uh, there's a research paper that was actually a review paper that came out that, um, you know, a few dozen leading scientists essentially um, took all of this research evidence and made a very compelling argument that, in their opinion and mine, um, ketogenic diets should be essentially be the first line treatment for type 2 diabetes. And Mm -hmm. also can be very helpful for even type 1 diabetes in terms of um, lowering the amount of medication that that patients need to use. So Mm -hmm. I think that's you know, um, there's a huge uh, shift in, in sort of the medical and clinical communities um, in finding this to be particularly effective for, for people who have insulin resistance. And I think that's trickling out into the real world as well, where even though this started out as a very medical, a medically supervised treatment, consumers find it obviously very helpful for reducing um, their weight loss and reducing their blood sugar levels. Now, it's clearly not the only way to lose weight or reduce right. blood sugar levels. 
but the research does seem to suggest that if, if you can sort of stick with it, 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 it is um, probably the most effective way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my opinion, it's also the most sustainable way. Um, people sort of criticize um, keto for being a very hard diet to stick to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's the, there's a hint of truth to that. Obviously, in the very obesogenic environment that we have, where there's a you know bagels and donuts and all this other delicious food around, um, it's hard to resist that temptation. But mm-hmm. you know, if you actually go back, and this is part of the reason I also think it's going to stick around for for longer than people realize, is if you go back and look at the anthropological um, literature in terms of what you know our ancestors, even hunter gatherers, ate. Um, you know, there's a, there's a um, large reliance actually on um, eating sort of whole foods, eating um, animal-based foods um, mm-hmm. that uh, shift people towards a more low-carbohydrate kind of diet. That doesn't mean everyone was keto or everyone, quite frankly, needs to be on keto. I don't, I don't right. think need to make that argument. But I do think it is a therapeutic diet that, that is certainly for people who are dealing with uh, medical conditions that are driven by insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. Um, it can be incredibly effective. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's done wonders for me. And, um, you know, I'm always curious, like we just had uh, Fabrice Grinda on and he was talking about his ketogenic. He was talking about, he likes to do like, you know, three weeks at a time. And um, um, I guess that being said, you know, any one or two things in terms of regimen, um, you know, I, I'm assuming <laughs> you're not like a Pinterest keto eater where it's like the, the avocado wrapped in bacon, wrapped in avocado and then deep fried and then, with cream cheese on top, um, no. uh, type of guy. Right. But obviously what it's, which is being coined as like, you know, dirty keto. Right. But yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you're clean keto, but can you tell us like two or three things, uh, with your diet, um, that, that seemed to work for you? Well, the first thing I just, I, I would refer people, I wrote a really um, interesting series and very contrarian, um, set of articles called the cure for diabetes, um, and obesity is processed food. Mm-hmm. which I know sounds kind of crazy. Um, and you can, it probably is to some degree, but it's a very actually pragmatic point of view right. um, where, you know, um, I, you know, I saw this research paper that basically was looking at American diets and basically said the standard American diet, two thirds of the calories come from ultra processed foods. And when I read that, I was just blown away and just thinking, you know, how much do we in the clinical community obviously tell people eat clean, eat whole foods. And that is the right, you know, recommendation. But it just doesn't map onto reality, given that two-thirds of what people eat aren't whole foods, and we're not going to get them, quite frankly, back to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, I think not for the majority of people. Um, right. The reason is um, you know, uh, convenience and cost and taste has essentially uh, 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 made ultra-processed foods win, right? If you think about mm-hmm. them as a technology, they've sort of dominated the market, and we're never going to go back, in my opinion, to eating 100% whole foods for 100% of people. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you're super motivated and you have the, the means and the time and the prioritization, you should absolutely eat as much whole food as possible. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of the dietary philosophy in the article. But it's saying, you know, if that's step one, step two is obviously pick better minimally processed foods. It, you know, just because foods are processed doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Like yogurt, for instance, butter has some processing, but not a lot. And, you know, we've been right. making this for thousands of years. You can make it in your kitchen for God's sake. Um, right. And in some ways, even maybe the fermentation um, may be beneficial, uh, that adding the processing for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, so that should be step two, um, three, like obviously eliminate as much junk food as possible in terms of Mm -hmm. stuff that's, that's not helping your diet before, if there's sort of a fallback foods um, that you have, um, I actually do think that we can make ultra processed foods that are optimized for health. And that's certainly what I did with my company actualize. We produce Mm -hmm. a ketogenic meal replacement, not to say that it's better than whole foods, I would even argue maybe it's not. But the, the reality is studies show that um, 
participants or, or subjects in research studies that use meal replacements lose twice as much weight. And yeah. the reason for that is because they don't cheat when you have a right. staple food where you're like, here, here's your breakfast. Here it is every day. And I know that when you go to the office, you're not going to end up eating that, you know, a cream cheese bagel. Someone's right. like lying around. So right. it's a very pragmatic point of view and saying, look, if you can get what you can eat hundred percent whole food, you should do exactly that. But if you can't, instead of going and cheating and eating, you know, junk food, um, you know, if there's sort of staple foods that you, you can have, um, that could be canned foods. It could be, um, you know, these ultra processed or what I call nutri foods where right. it's really been designed and optimized for health. Um, so like our product, for instance, had no glycemic in, impact, it didn't affect your blood sugar levels at all. So you could feel safe mm -hmm. as a patient with diabetes or someone who's trying to lose weight, um, that this would be good for your health. So I think that's my, my point of view is I'm a behaviorist. I'm super pragmatic, um, yeah. especially when I work with clients and say, look, this is the ideal. This is the optimum. You should do your best to try to reach it. But you need to have, you know, contingency and you should, you should have backup plans because life happens, stress happens. We all are limited in terms of our time and energy. And, and the best diet, quite frankly, is the one that you can stick to long term. So the, mm -hmm. the best, the better that we can do to sort of mitigate, you know, relapse and other things, I think that's the best way to eat effectively, whether you're eating keto or not. Right. Right. Yeah, no, Cameron, what I loved about your article is obviously you blend a lot of sciences, but you integrate the behavioral aspect of it. Because I, I, I think you quoted BJ Fogg in there, and I remember him speaking, and, you know, he's all about, you know, making the good behavior the, the default in, in your natural path. But with, like, your, you know, the, the protein powder that you have, right, it's like, you know, if you make that your base, like, ground level, and you make it so consistent, like you're saying, and so easy to do, it's just so straightforward, that becomes a floor behavior, at least. Then you'll eventually build on top of that, right? As that as that becomes a habit, you know. Obviously, you're not promoting like you know live off that stuff like your whole yeah. life. Obviously, have a reasonable level of consumption to it, but you know. Um, so anyway, I just I, I love that article that you did there. Um, it, it does blend, you know, the interesting uh, and, and the, the headline catches your attention. It's like, well, what, what's he saying? But, exactly. but uh, so I love that. I love the way you named it. But um, I guess uh, so. Thank you for sharing that and kind of what you're doing. And it's funny. I, I do the same thing. I've got a really low carb. Uh, protein powder that's very like in infused it's it's kind of like a, a vega type of pro protein really low carb but obviously I'll, i'm i'm gonna walk to uh, you know trader joe's down the road and get one of those like to go salads uh and eat it in the park here in about 45 minutes right and that'll awesome. be like my, my my lunch but uh but long story short and i'll still stay in keto right um but but um Long story short, um, I guess not long story short, but um, on other areas that you've been looking at and investing in. So I know you've been involved with like companies like, um, uh, you know, directly or indirectly, like like Bulletproof and help, like helping with, you know, probably look at it, investments like uh, Workly mm -hmm. and um, uh, Grin and, and some other ones, if I might be not mentioning them all. But all of them are, you know, I would say one degree or even worse case, two degrees away from health. Everything's well-being, right? Or everything affects well-being. Can you speak a little bit about some of these other areas in health that you're looking at, investing in, help facilitate investments in? And, and what else has your, your passion and fascination um, in this For space? Sure. So yeah. besides the, the consumer telemedicine that I mentioned, I'm really interested in this concept of, of what I call iterative treatments. Mm. So, you know, if you if you think about even traditional care, I'll give you I'll, I'll give a very concrete example. So um, a, a ton of people are vitamin D deficient, particularly if you sort of live above a latitude that's like San Francisco, D.C. and Athens. You just mm -hmm. literally don't get enough sun exposure to mm -hmm. produce enough vitamin D 
through your skin. Um, and you know, as, as most of us are sort of office workers these days, we just don't spend enough time in the sun. So as a result of that, like, obviously it's ideal if you, you know, you get your vitamin D from sunshine and food. Um, but since we don't do that, you know, people, you know, rightly take sort of vitamin D supplements to make up for, you know, the environmental change that we've, um, that we lack. And so the right way to do that, though, is is um, not to do, you know do it blindly by by guessing, um, but it's to take uh, a supplement, take a blood test, see what your vitamin D levels are, and then you know you adjust the dosage to make sure that you're getting the right amount. And the reason that's sort of necessary is because a you know we do have very different individual levels of sun exposure. Even if you live in the same place, you you and I may spend different times in the sun, and we may have different sort of melanin levels you know, based on our, you know, genetics, um, and how dark our sort of skin gets that, that mm. influences vitamin D absorption. So it's a very logical thing to just test your levels and then take, you know, a, a supplement or, or a prescription, um, make sure it's at the right sort of therapeutic dose. And then you adjust it to so get to the optimal level. So the, the challenge though, is, is it's actually kind of a pain in the butt and most people don't do it right. Cause it's invasive mm-hmm. to take a blood test. It takes time. You got to go to a lab. It costs a lot of money. But I think as sort of some of these diagnostics become cheaper and more accessible, you're going to see more and more of these paired sort of diagnostics and therapeutics where instead of just sort of blindly, you know, whenever you have a condition or a deficit of some sort, you know, you or your doctor um, just take sort of the standard 100 milligram dose or whatever it is um, that we we test and optimize these things uh, better, faster uh, and more effectively over time. Um, mm-hmm. I think this will allow treatments to be just a lot more effective just because there's so much individual variance, especially with things like pharmacokinetics with even some of these drugs mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we can very quickly iterate um, on this. And I think it's going to imp- improve health in significant ways. Um, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of the barriers quite just frankly been access- uh, accessibility and cost. So uh, I, I'm really interested in solutions that kind of loop this together where it's constantly testing and then providing the treatment and optimizing the treatment and then testing again. Um, in this sort of feedback loop. And, and the, the feedback loops, like the common tests, like there's a lot of like new consumerized like biometrics tests. There's 23andMe, there's there's microbiome tests. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, obviously Roman, or I'm sorry, they, they renamed to Roe, you know, companies like that, like at home, um, you know, delivery of things and delivery and diagnostics. Any recommendations or things that you're seeing to get that feedback loop going you know, faster because obviously like today, right? Like, you know, they say like, if you're on keto, you know, get a, get a blood test, get a biometric test every, every X amount of weeks or whatever that you're on it to make sure your, your HDLs and LDLs are fine. But any, any, to close that feedback loop, any like recommended test or I know it all depends, but just, just uh, trying to modernize my thinking here in terms of, you know, well, the thing is, we have to make sure that you know, in, in if you're if you're trying to build a really a solid product around this sort of theme, right? You have to make sure the data is actionable. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm super excited about the microbiome, but I just quite frankly think we don't know enough about it right now right. to know, you know, what is what is optimal, right. um, you know, right. what what is best, and so, you know, a we have to have a, a base level of understanding to make sure that we know what what is optimal, um, or what leads to a particular outcome that we're looking for. Um, and then, you know, the data has to be very actionable. I think there's like this myth that if you just like feed, um, consumers or patients data, it'll change their behavior. <laughs> and if you're in a clinician, like right. myself working in the real world, you, you realize how, how, uh, totally ineffective that is. Like most, uh-huh. most of the reason, like, you know, it, it's like, for example, with CGMs, I do think there is some value there in providing, um, you know, uh, patients with data in particular use cases, I would say. 
But um, I think most people, you know, even if they don't know what their blood sugar level is, they know that eating, you know, sugary junk food is bad for them. It's, it's not it's not a lack of education thing. And if I show you a number that just validates that, maybe for some people it helps. But I think, you know, there's deeper reasons that people continue to eat, to eat poorly. And so I don't think data is a, a cure-all as much as people say it is. However, mm -hmm. if the data leads to a more actionable thing, like for instance, if you are, you know, um, you know, monitoring your sleep architecture with with biometrics, and you can tell, you know, how well you're sleeping, and then you feed that into, you know, changing the temperature of your room to the optimal level, and it's automatically mm -hmm. done by an algorithm. That can I think can be very powerful because it's individualized, it's personalized, and it's not based on some theory, but it's actually taking that data, uh, you know, changing the environmental conditions, and then. Um, you know, essentially running a, a, a closed loop experiment where it's showing that it's improving what it's doing. So I think as these things become more and more feasible, you're going to mm -hmm. you're going to really see uh, value add there, especially because it's more passive. And then the patient or the consumer is not having to do the work. It's, it's just kind of optimizing, um, you know, for them. Mm, mm, I love it. I love it. And, and uh, so, yeah, no, this is an interesting like field in science. I, I don't even know. I've never really even heard the market kind of uh, maybe you're, you're creating the market here for innovations and iterative treatments. And so I'm fascinated. I, I just took a little note and put it under my research section of my to-doist just now. Uh, sure. So, but um, what the, the else? thing I was going to yeah. say is um, yeah. Yeah. The, the third area that I'm excited about these days is um, I'm really interested in vertically integrated solutions mm -hmm. um, in healthcare. You know, I think the challenge is, unfortunately, we have such a sick care system. Mm -hmm. um, not a healthcare system, as I like to say, you know, we're very right. focused on, we're great at, at sort of treating, uh, you know, diseases. We're not so great at preventative health. Um, and so I think it becomes challenging, um, you know, to sell into the existing healthcare system sometimes when the incentives, quite frankly, aren't aligned. Um, so I think a lot of companies are rightly so, although it's a lot, it's very difficult to do so. They're saying, look, we, you know, if we can't sell this into the existing healthcare system, we're just going to compete with it. Um, and so you're seeing these rise of sort of full stack digital clinics, whether they're for everything from diabetes to depression and mm -hmm. saying, look, we're going to be the treatment provider full stack. Um, and obviously, if we're doing what we say we're doing, you know, hopefully as, as we shift to sort of these value based care models, um, you know, they're getting paid to provide, you know, um, you know, care for for a certain contingent of patients. And obviously, if they're delivering value, they get to, to share in the proceeds of that. So it aligns both clinical and economic incentives. Um, I think it's sort of the right, uh, right way to go. So, um, you know, these are, these are challenging companies to build, but I think they're also um, more defensible and, and scalable um, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Um, no, this is this is great, Cameron. Um, I really appreciate the you know, the breakdown of these fields and um, it's exciting that obviously you're voting with your dollars, but you're, you know, you're, you're, you're facilitating um, the growth of these companies, which is really fascinating. And so it's interesting, like what, what's interesting is like the convergence of a lot of these things and how it comes to a head for healthcare overall. Right. So um, um, can you elaborate a little bit on some of these themes that you're talking about or, or, and, and what else gets added to these themes in the future? So I, what I'm more cu curious is, your, what's the future of health according yeah. to Cameron? Like what's, what's health look like in the future? Maybe, you know, take us, take us through a, a time horizon. What's, what's going to happen with these different models, these different phenomenon? Um, what is, what does it look like? And, and are you excited about that future? I just love to hear more of that. 
absolutely. I, I always joke that it's it's easy to predict the future. It's it's hard to get the timing right. I think right. That's sort of the uh, right. That's sort of the art of VC. I, I I could tell you what I think the future is, and, I, and I'm actually pretty confident that it'll come true. I just don't know if that's two years away or it's ten years away. Right. That, that's the right. tricky thing because you know you're subject to market forces. But I'll I'll tell you three things that I'm particularly excited about. Just looking forward into the future. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them touches on, you know, one of the things that we've already talked about a little bit is, you know, the field of behavioral medicine, which is, you know, my, my specialty area, um, I, I think is, is so powerful, right? Because unfortunately, you know, the healthcare system as, as being a sick care system has been so focused on medicating conditions. And obviously, there's an mm -hmm. incredible value to doing that in certain cases. But if we're shifting back and like talking about primary uh, prevention, you know, obviously lifestyle medicine or sort of behavioral solutions are, are clearly the key for things like obesity and diabetes. The challenge is just from a cost basis, it's it's so much cheaper to prescribe, you know, metformin for four bucks for a month's supply than to do intensive behavioral counseling, right. um, which might cost $400, right? Right. So, you know, the healthcare system, not that it doesn't realize this, it's just, you know, economically realizes, um, you know, the feasibility of implementing these solutions in a healthcare system where we're already spending too much money um, is a huge, huge barrier. So um, one of my interests is um, behavioral medicine solutions that focus, um, speaking of BJ Fogg, not so much on increasing people's motivation through uh -huh. sort of coaching and counseling, but increasing people's ability to do the right thing. Right. I think that's actually the area that's been very, very underutilized where I obviously, you know, as a psychologist, I, there's incredible power and efficacy of therapy. Um, if the person is already motivated, they have to be at least moderately motivated, I think, to, to really benefit in my experience. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, in psychology, we can't change people. We can only give people the knowledge, tools, and right. stuff for them to change themselves. Um, but the other thing that I think is under sort of leveraged is, is just how do we make people to, uh, do the right thing um, or make mm -hmm. it much easier for them? And that, that literally includes the example that I shared of we, we can literally feed people. And we're mm -hmm. seeing this, for instance, with like, you know, not just with my company, but Geisinger, for instance, you know, in their pharmacies. Um, would take high-risk patients and then have them pick up free food that they would provide them um, to help manage their conditions. And, you know, they, they're literally uh, economically incentivizing that by, by saying, hey, look, we're going to subsidize this food. Um, and obviously, if you eat it, we have pretty good indication that you'll be healthier. So I'm really interested in models that, um, uh, you know, just make it easier for people to do the right thing, because I think that's the ultimate solution from a societal perspective. Um, and that includes behavioral economics, too. The, the, the second thing that I'm really interested in is um, uh, prescription digital therapeutics. So I was actually the first person to publish the term digital therapeutics in a peer-reviewed research paper um, mm. a few years ago when I, you know, when I was working at Omada. Um, and, you know, the, the model that a lot of these digital therapeutics companies have taken is to sell into employers and payers mm. uh, because it's, it's an easier, more straightforward path. But in doing so, we've sort of cut the provider out of the picture. Um, which is not how healthcare is traditionally practiced. Usually, you know, the doctor is the, the sort of the agent of, of care. And I think, you know, the evolution that we're going to see is that providers are going to be reintegrated back into the loop where the vision that, you know, I always had was, you know, a provider not just um, doesn't have the option to just prescribe a medication, but why can't they prescribe a, a behavioral or digital therapeutic and saying, right. okay, you know, um, you know you, you're obese and, you know, you have these metabolic uh, risk factors. I'm going to write you a, a behavioral prescription where it has a little QR code or a code to enter this online program. Um, and, you know, I think uh, 
what enables that is obviously, you know, becoming like any other therapeutic, going through the FDA, running clinical trials, um, getting approval, and then um, getting payers to reimburse for that. I think right now it's been onerous, um, that process, just because the FDA is unfamiliar with like software, right? Where as opposed to a drug where you approve it once and it never changes, software by by design is supposed to be iterated upon, right? So once the FDA approves a prescription digital therapeutic, it's you know companies are actually have a hard time changing it, even though they should be updating and improving it over time because that's not what was approved. So hmm. you know we have to fix some of these issues um, in in sort of the regulatory sphere. But hmm. I think once we do, it'll become incredibly powerful once prescription um, uh, digital therapeutics are on par with. Um, you know, drugs, uh, mm -hmm. traditional therapeutics, and, and ideally are co-prescribed, where you can imagine a world in which you get your medication and you get a, a prescription digital therapeutic that's the companion to it, that helps you actually with the adherence to that medication, which of course, you know, pharma companies will love, um, but also increases treatment outcomes where there's a synergy uh, between, you know, doing the behavioral stuff, which we know is very important, um, taking the medication that helps with the symptom reduction, and then they work together hand in hand. So, um, mm. I think that's a that's a super interesting area, and you know we'll see how long that takes um, mm -hmm. to to come to fruition. And then the third area, this is a kind of more out of a personal, um, you know, professional interest, is I, I really think there's going to be an evolution of psychologists to become more like psychiatrists, mm -hmm. um, which I think will actually um, do huge benefits for the mental health field. So if you look at the evolution of psychiatry. Yeah, not too long ago, even one generation ago, psychiatrists were essentially psychoanalysts. They would mm -hmm. see patients, you know, three times a week for intensive, deep, you know, psychoanalytic treatment. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, insurance companies obviously didn't like that. It was very, you know, time and cost um, uh, intensive. Um, and so psychiatrists have obviously become pharmacologists these days. They, they see patients maybe once uh, a month or even every three months. Um, and, and largely prescribe medications because that's, that's their area of focus. Nobody else mm. does it. Um, and it's the best sort of bang for their buck in terms of the healthcare system to do. Um, and the result of that though, is like a psychiatrist can see, you know, over a hundred patients a week. Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, it allows them to scale themselves much better. Psychologists on the other hand, you know, you can't really see more than 30 to 40 patients a week. We're still sort of trapped in this, um, hour long therapy model. Um, and the challenge is, of course, you know, you have sort of mid-level providers and even people who pretend to be therapists like these life and executive coaches who are sort of undermining, um, you know, them as well. But I, I think what the evolution will become is, is, is very similar to what psychiatry become is where the, the psychologists really be, become a diagnostician mm. and focus on really getting a, a solid diagnosis of, of what's going on with the patient and conceptualizing, you know, what are their barriers to, to you know, um, you know, living a better life. And then at that point, you know, they could, for instance, prescribe a digital therapeutic or something else where they're not the agent of change, where it's, they're not necessarily hand in hand providing the, the treatment, but they're sort of prescribing it, letting the software, whatever it is, um, you know, do the work. And then they're checking in, they're titrating that, they're adjusting it to see if it's working or not, or changing it around if it's not. Um, and that allows them to, you know, see a lot more patients and, and use their time and leverage it much more effectively. So I think once that happens, you're going to see, um, you know, uh, a huge unlocking of mental health where right now, you know, uh, it's, it's challenging because, um, you know, psychologists like myself, you either have to take insurance, um, which, you know, limits, you know, who you can see and, and how much you can see them. Um, but you have to sort of be reimbursed at high rates to justify your time. Uh, I think the way that um, you address that, obviously, is if you can see more patients in a much more scalable way 
you can you can provide care actually in a much more cost-effective way as well. Mm, mm, I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's so key. And I know we didn't get a chance to go deep in this area too as well. Uh, and I like the model and the shift, and it does feel like that's going to happen. And then I appreciate your other um, laying out the other two trends you mentioned uh, coming to fruition. Um, let me ask you, I guess one, one thing, I want to be sensitive to our time here, but, um, and I know we talked about more on the uh, personal, like what you're doing from a, like a, like a, like a nutrition standpoint with the, on the keto side. But, but my, my uh, question here is more about from a mental what do you do to stay mentally healthy and saying, you know, it being in this field? Um, I'm just kind of curious, like what morning, weekly, monthly routines do you do, um, you know, to keep, you know, the, the spiritual, the mindful, the mental side of yourself uh, solid? I'm always just interesting and fascinated in hearing the personal habits of, of, of people in certain professional areas. Um, For sure. Yeah. Well, and, and listen. One, yeah. It's a great question. You know, one of my personal philosophies is I, I really think as a healthcare practitioner, you have to practice what you preach. Amen. I know maybe not everyone agrees with that, but I, I just think from a personal values and integrity standpoint, um, it's important. You know, obviously a lot of the work that I do. So, you know, my private practice focuses on um, working mostly with executives. I, I work mostly with CEOs and VCs because that's who I'm, I'm around. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'd say a, a lot of what I do is actually very much focused on optimizing their health. You know, when you're busy mm -hmm. running a company, you're, you're not taking care of yourself um, just because it's, it's so crazy and chaotic and you're so busy that it's, it's hard to prioritize yourself. And so, you know, obviously, you know, bring that expertise in helping people with, uh, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, manage their diet, their exercise, their sleep and their focus. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of what I call the four sort of key health behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's true for everyone, including myself. Um, you know, focus on and provide accountability for. Um, and so the way that I do that is I, I actually, from a, as a behaviorist, think that the biggest reason that people don't keep up with those things, it's not because they know it's, they, it's not important to them or, um, or, or they don't see the sort of the value in it. Um, it's just that uh, it's just not prioritized, right? Right. And we do all, all of us, including myself, have sort of these, these busy lives, especially if you're sort of an ambitious person. Okay. So there needs to be some sort of system or some sort of structure in place to make sure that you're doing them and to get back on the wagon, as I said earlier, um, when you don't. And so okay. I wrote a, a, an article about this called The Keystone Habit, which you can you know Google or find on my, my Medium or LinkedIn. Um, and really what it is, it's, it's kind of a meta habit. It's the mm. habit to track all of your habits. And it's something that I try to practice as mm. much as possible which is, you know, at, at certain intervals, um, usually for me, it's around meal times, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, I do just a quick uh, four minute check in and just say, okay, you know, what do I want to focus on for, you know, the, the, the morning, the afternoon or the evening? Um, you know, what have I been working on? Um, you know, has it gone well? Has it not gone well? Um, if I didn't do what I said I was going to do, what got in the way? Uh, once I've identified those barriers, you know, what can I do differently? you know, this time around. Um, and so I'm iterating on it. So I think that's a, that's incredibly a powerful, um, tool in that most people just, you know, even with their best intentions, when they're trying to focus on their health, something happens, something throws them off, they fall off the wagon and then life gets in the way and they forgot they're even working on something in the first place. Okay. And when you have this sort of ritual or habit where you're checking in 
um, at least once a day, if not multiple times a day, even if it's very short, it literally could be, like I said, four minutes, could be a minute if that's all the time that you have for, but it just reinstills that reminder of like, oh, okay, I am focusing on my, whatever, let's say diet, you know, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, why did I, you know, splurge for dinner and what threw me off there that I ate all the bread that the restaurant put out, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do differently this time? Okay. Maybe I shouldn't skip lunch. So I'm not ravenously hungry when I get to the, the restaurant at dinner. Okay. So now mm-hmm. tomorrow I have a new strategy. I'm going to try it, see how that goes. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like a concrete example of that where, you know, in, in a lot of ways I, you know, especially working with tech CEOs, you know, I say, you know, we, we use sort of use lean and agile, um, methodologies to iterate quickly on our products, but we don't apply that to our own behaviors and our own lives. So in a lot of ways, you know, the Keystone habit is is very analogous to that, where it's, it's just taking a few minutes, you know, throughout the day to be very clear on what you're working on um, and, and figure out ways of constantly iterating on it so that we're continually improving um, Mm. on these things. And I found that to be such a helpful sort of foundational Mm. habit for myself and for my clients. I love it. I love it. No, I appreciate that. It's uh, it's inspiring. It's definitely something I'll, I'm going to have to try and integrate. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Uh, Cameron, yeah, very, very, uh, it's a great mental model, you know, and I, I, I definitely am, uh, you know, very appreciative of you sharing. Uh, not just this, but, you know, uh, again, your origin story, your passions of what you're focused on, and, you know, obviously your future, your vision of uh, health in the future. Uh, Cameron, um, my last question, I promise it's my last one, is um, social media and contact-wise, if our listeners would like to engage with you or reach out and uh, interact with you, if you'd like that to happen, <laughs> what would you? What would be a good way to do so? Yeah, um, so I'm active on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Sapah, D-R-S-E-P-A-H. Uh, my DMs are open, too, if you want to reach me that way. Um, professionally, if you're interested in collaborating, um, whether it's, you know, pitching a company, um, in the consumer health tech space, you can add me on LinkedIn at Cameron Sapa. Um, and if you're interested in, in some of the articles that I mentioned, I, I publish everything, um, on medium as well. Um, so you can find me, um, on there. So, um, awesome. you know, I, I feel very grateful to be part of, um, you know, this ecosystem of, of both, you know, health and tech and the intersection of both of them. Um, and, you know, giving, giving back in, in that capacity. So like one of the things I, I still do is I still, um, uh, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I still teach at UCSF. I'm very mm. privileged to train the psychiatry residents there. And that's part of the way that I give back to the community. Um, but you know, I, I, I get such uh, great messages from, you know, all these people who, when I, you know, publish articles or even send silly tweets, um, you know, in terms of helping people and, um, so I'm, I'm very open to hearing from folks and, and learning from from you all just as much as, um, you know, uh, you know, hopefully they, they've learned from me. Love it. I love it. Dr. Sapa, this was great having you on the show. Really appreciate your work, what you're doing. And obviously, you know, obviously we can see I can see and, and hear the uh, the not just the passion, but just, you know, it is it is a really interesting time and playground and you're you're you're. You, you know, the people that you're helping are benefiting from that, the intersection of your passion and your work. So, uh, Dr. Sipa, this was great. Um, thank you for being on our show. And then as you work on more things, see more things, love for you to come back and, and continue to share your story. Would love to do so. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.